for those of you who haven't met yet, my name's Rollin, I'm the lead pastor here, and it's uh, good to be with you. Uh, just to let you know, what we've been doing is a series called Amazing Grace, and really covering the amazing grace of God as the foundation of our relationship with Him, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of all that we do in our walk with Him. And so uh, those uh, messages are online for you if you've um, had to miss any of them, but we wanted to set a theological premise for you so that you have a proper posture uh, towards God and all that you do. Um, last week, what we uh, covered was God's sufficient grace, um, really how to really grace transforms our suffering. And we all know that in the fallen world that we exist in, um, there's going to come a point, not if, but when we come to a point of some sort of suffering in our lives, God's grace is truly sufficient for us during that time. Um, this week, as we um, come to the end of our series, uh, we're going to finish the series next week, um, but uh, many people uh, have been asking the question about um, how does grace work practically in the matters and the affairs of everyday life and the matters and affairs of my heart. Um, and so I know that we're coming upon tax season. And so what is on people's minds often is uh, finances. And really people have been asking questions, how does God's grace transform my interaction with my finances on a daily basis? And so today we're talking about how God's grace is an enriching grace and how God's grace literally transforms the issues of our hearts to free us from the idolatry of self, the idolatry of fear, and the idolatry of pleasures that would really try to choke the word, making it unfruitful in our lives. And many times it's God's transforming grace coming to our finances. So today we're going to talk about God's enriching grace. And if you have a Bible today, um, you can... Um, open up to 2 Corinthians, where we've been for a while, but it's uh, been Paul the Apostle talking, and he's talking to the Corinthian church. And today, it's, uh, I hope to uh, not just preach to you, but teach and talk to you, okay? Uh, teach and talk to you. I'm going to try to, I, I know I talk fast usually. I'm going to try to slow it down today, okay? Um, so that we can really uh, go through this and unpack this and really uh, upend some misunderstandings even about scripture as people have quoted them and really set a proper premise for these things whenever we're looking at things biblically. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. God, thank you um, for your word to us today. God, thank you for your love for us and thank you that you've clearly demonstrated your love in giving the life of your son. God, we're asking today that you would remove blinders from our eyes and that God, as we discuss your enriching grace, that God, you would help us to be delivered of fear. You'd help us to be delivered of selfishness. You'd be, help us to be delivered, really, of anything that would keep us from walking the faith life with you. God, I pray that you would help us to understand your word clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today, um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 8. We're going to look at um, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 8, but where we're going to pick up reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and how God's grace transforms our finances um, because of the fact that when Paul the Apostle was planting churches in the known Roman world, he did it um, specifically um, during a period of time from about 50 AD to 57 AD. And uh, 52 to 57 um, AD, when you see him starting churches, 
um, in the known Roman world. A considerable portion during that period of time, he had about three missionary journeys that were utilized to get churches started throughout the Roman world. And in that period of time, a considerable proportion of Paul's time and energy was devoted to organizing a collection among his, um, his Gentile churches for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. You see him referencing that in Romans 15, 26. There's a general agreement that Acts 24 contains a list of the appointed delegates from certain Gentile churches who were Paul's traveling companions on his final visit to Jerusalem when he was delivering his collection. The offering was intended for the Jewish Christians at Jerusalem who were going through difficult times. So again, this is a background for the scripture that we're reading, and let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 9 together, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Okay. Do we have that? Okay. If not, it's okay. I have 2 Corinthians 9 on my phone, and so do you. So we have 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 6 today, okay? 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So whenever you look at this, you see very practically um, that Paul's writing in its a particular context here. A lot of times if you've um, grown up in the church or you've grown up around the church, this is an often quoted scripture in regards to giving. How many people have heard this before? Okay, and they've heard this scripture in regards to giving, right? Specifically because it's in the New Testament, people ultimately say that in this regards to giving, God's measure of giving is this standard, where we say God doesn't want anybody to give out of compulsion, but he wants them to give generously, right? Um, joyfully, not out of obligation, right? But out of an overflowing heart. Now, the good news is, is that when you look at the proper interpretation of the New Testament and the Old Testament, what we've got to understand is that the New Testament isn't getting rid of all that God 
established in the Old Testament. Everybody understand that? That's how a lot of times we approach the Word of God. Because there's a New Testament, we think that the Old Testament, anything that he wrote before, doesn't apply. And so when they look at this scripture, they start to think, oh, well, obviously, the before, God used to require giving, you know what I mean, in terms of tithes and offerings. But now he's saying, don't do it under compulsion. Just do it, you know what I mean, as you want to, basically, right? As you desire, as you so wish, as it over overflows out of your heart. The truth of the matter, though, is they're misinterpreting the context here. The context of this is Paul was taking up an offering for the Jerusalem church that was in need during that time. And so there was a difference between their regular practice of tithing, worshiping God through their giving, and this particular offering that came out of the generosity of their heart. Does that make sense? What he's doing is he's applying this to something specific. And he's saying that in this offering, which goes above and beyond your tithe, there needs to be no compulsion to it. But you need to do it generously out of the overflow of your heart. You don't need to feel obligated to it, but there should be something in the grace of God that's stirring up in you to share with those in need. Now, why uh, Paul's talking this way, just to give you a further context about the uh, Jerusalem church, is there were several uh, factors that contributed to the poverty of the Jerusalem church at the time. Number one was after their conversion to Christianity, many Jews in Jerusalem would have been ostracized both socially and economically, right? Meaning that it actually cost them something to become Christian. It actually cost them something in their environment to put their faith in Christ and to identify with Christ. It cost them both socially and economically. Number two, the community sharing described in Acts 2, 44 through 45. Remember, if you go back and do Bible study and read your Bible, you see that the believers shared their possessions. And it said that there were no needy persons among them because from time to time, the people who had property would go and sell it and they would give to anyone who had need so that there were, they were taking care of one another like a family, right? And so what happened is, is that undoubtedly that thing, that type of practice would have aggravated the poverty that they were already experiencing, right? It's like, I don't have much, but now I'm sharing with those who don't have anything. And so that's aggravating the poverty that I already have. Number three, persistent food shortages in Palestine because of overpopulation culminated in the famine of AD 46 in the time of Emperor Claudius. And so what you see is that the overpopulation of the city literally led to a famine in the time, okay? These are practical things that the Jerusalem church was dealing with. Number four, as the mother church of Christendom, the Jerusalem church was obliged to support a proportionally large number of teachers and probably to provide hospitality for frequent Christian visitors to the holy city. You've heard people um, talking about pilgrimages to the holy city, but the type of hospitality that they would offer during the time is they would literally open up their homes, right, to those who are passing through. And that also took what? Finances, right? Resources. This is what they were doing during that time. And then number five, Jews in Palestine 
were subject to a twofold taxation that literally crippled them. Number one, they had the normal Jewish taxes like the temple tax and the like, but then the Romans came in and doubly taxed them, right? So if anybody's been using TurboTax, anybody using TurboTax yet? Okay. It's sort of like, you know, anybody ever been surprised by the left corner? You're like, how do I owe that? No, not, okay, that's just me. Sometimes I'm like, I thought I was getting a refund. Anyway, but the, 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 the whole point was this. This was not the first time, though, that the Corinthians had heard of the collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Because when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, you see, I'm sorry, 16, 1 through 4, you see that Paul gave them certain information and directions about the project that they had probably requested in the earlier letter. Whether they had acted on Paul's instructions is uncertain, but in all probability, progress on the collection soon stopped. Meaning that Paul was saying, hey, listen, guys, this is the situation in Jerusalem. We need to, as the body of Christ, help them. And Paul sent letters to instruct them how to be a part of that. However, once you get to 2 Corinthians, they probably had a good start, as we all do, right? But then over the course of time, they stopped in their giving, right? And so it's almost like if you've ever been a part of um, hurricane relief before. Has anybody ever contributed to something like texted in to contribute to something like hurricane relief when something's happened on a mass scale? How many people know that the biggest wave of giving is in the first couple of days? It's in the first couple of days when everybody's all like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. But then immediately we're on to the next thing, right? Because we have so much information, not realizing that, for instance, the devastation in Haiti that took place years ago, they're still rebuilding from that now. They're still rebuilding from that now. And so the actual effort and the help that they need didn't just happen at the beginning. It actually continues to this point now, right? And so this is the same type of mentality that they're dealing with in the Jerusalem church that I might have started with my giving, but then it dissipates over the course of time. Now, the question is, is why that begins to happen? The reason that it begins to happen is because we have four different postures of giving that we really need to deal with in our hearts. Whenever we're thinking about our resources, Sources, we understand it not as something that we own personally, but it's a stewardship before God that he expects us to distribute according to his will, right? Now, whenever you're looking at the giving that took place in um, the New Testament church, the four postures of giving that we have to deal with then and also today are really fourfold. Number one, it's the posture of got to give, okay? Got to give. Whenever you think of giving, some people only think of it as I have got to give. When they think of giving in the church setting, they think of I've got to give my tithe, right? If you've grown up in the church before, I did not grow up in the church, so this was all new to me, mind you. You know what I mean? When people were talking about a tithe in the church and they were talking about giving to God, they were explaining it well as a form of worship, right? All throughout the scripture, you see it described as a form of worship where God says, hey, listen, every point of increase that I give to you, I want a tenth of. Now, whenever he's talking about a tenth, that means that when I get my paycheck, and yes, I do get a paycheck, I am expected to give off of my paycheck my first 10% my first and my best to God. And yes, just because I'm behind a pulpit preaching doesn't mean I'm excused from that. How many people can say amen to that? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> All right. It's like I, I'm obligated <laughs> to give. And whenever I give my 10% to God, right, I'm giving him not out of the generosity of my heart, but I'm giving him what he requires of me, right? 
For example, when I am out in the cold and so I see somebody who may need a coat, right? If I let you, because you came out in the cold, borrow my coat. I mean, you can have it if you want, but I mean, I'm saying if I let it, it almost weighs as, as much as another man. I'm so, you know, but the thing is, if I give you my coat and then eventually you give it back to me, do I expect to, do you expect me to say how generous you are because you gave me back the coat that was mine? Hello? Would I like write you a letter in the mail and say, thank you so much for returning my coat to me? Thank you. You know, I, I could, wouldn't have ever expected this from somebody. The generosity coming out of your heart just overwhelms me. The answer is no. When you give me back the coat that I lent you, it was mine in the first place, right? And so you giving back my coat isn't a form of generosity. It's a form of obligation, right? I'm obligated to return that which I've borrowed. That is the nature of the tithe. When you give God your 10%, you're basically saying, God, in worship to you, I'm giving you what I owe you. Now, the problem with that, though, is that that's where most people stay. They're like, I do it begrudgingly because I just have to. And if I don't, people are going to say I'm robbing God and then all the, you know, all hell breaks loose. And, you know, it's sort of like, well, that is true. God did say, don't rob me, right, by taking from my tithes and offerings. But there's something more in our heart posture that God wants to get us to. Now, the second posture that people oftentimes have is giving to get, giving to get. And this mentality of giving to get is one what's sort of like investment, right? Does anybody invest in here? Okay. Everybody should invest in here. We have several financial planners who can speak to you. Okay. But it's sort of like, <clears throat> but giving to get, and that's the posture that they have before God. And what had the problem with giving to get is that it almost becomes contractual, right? It becomes contractual. God, I'm just giving to you because you made me a promise that if I give, you're going to throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that I can't contain it, right? And so what happens in this giving to get mentality is that oftentimes you have expectations based on promises that God didn't make to you. God's not saying to give so that you can get everything you want. Everybody understand that? God is saying, give because it's obedience, give because it's faith, and then give because it's worship. But that doesn't mean I'm going to give you everything you want. This giving to get mentality is not a biblical mentality, though people have tried to promote it that way. You understand? God says, I will meet all your needs according to his glory in Christ Jesus, not all your wants. And how many people know that God many times can, as a good father, withhold wants for our good? Because if you got everything you wanted, it would actually further corrupt your heart rather than helping you. And God's saying, don't have a mentality where you're just giving to get as if it's an investment and expecting something in return. The third mentality, though, is sort of where we get into the Macedonian mentality where people get, I'm sorry, they get to give, where people are actually excited to give. 
I'm telling you, whenever you are transformed by the grace of God, you want to participate in the work of God. That is the truth of the matter. When God's actually done a work inside of you and you've seen him deliver your life, you're looking to participate and see that expand in ways that God has worked in your own life, right? Sort of like when I was saved, I was like, listen, God, you don't just have my heart, but I'm asking you to take everything, Take it all, right? Take, give it all away, right? And it's just sort of like, God, I want this salvation that I've experienced to be multiplied, right? So I'm like, God, what can I do to help that? And it's not just in my finances, but it's in my giving of my time. It's the giving of my talent, right? It's me giving my skill to do something to help the kingdom of God advance. I'm excited to give because God's so moved in me, right? Just like the love of God. We love God because what? He first loved us. And whatever we give him in return isn't just out of an obligation. Yes, it's a command to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But how many people enjoy loving the Lord? Okay, come on church. Okay. It's like you can enjoy loving the Lord, right? Let me tell you something, comparing it to marriage. I don't just have to love my wife. I enjoy loving my wife. I enjoy loving on, expressing my love to her. 18 years in, yes, that is possible. Come on, everybody say amen to that. Yes, and it gets sweeter by the day when you do it God's way, right? Because it's sort of like he says, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn shining ever brighter until the full light of day. So at first, I had to get over myself, right? When we first got married, I had to get over the selfishness that I didn't know was in there. But as we progress through the years and as I die to myself a little bit more each day, come on, you know what I'm talking about. It's sort of like, well, if, if you're married and even if you're not, you have friends who are married and they'll tell you the truth. It's like you got to get over yourself a little bit more each day. I started to make that turn. It's like a NASCAR race, right? I was starting to turn that corner. Well, you guys aren't from the South. But it's like, listen, it's like I started to turn that corner and I got excited about loving her, excited about getting excited about denying myself to show her my love for her. I was excited to give. That's the place that God wants us to get with him. But then finally, you know, a lot of times that rests on our own energy or strength. You know what I mean? But the Bible here talks about grace to give. Grace to give. When you're actually grace to give, then all of a sudden you step into God's ability. God's ability to give whenever you are giving beyond your ability. Now, the grace of giving, if we look at that scripture again, it talks about things at least in three forms. It talks about the grace of giving that comes forth in, number one, all sufficiency. All sufficiency. All sufficiency. When he's talking about being grace to give, he says that, <clears throat> referring back to 2 Corinthians 8.3, it says the Corinthian church, it says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, sorry, the Macedonian church, according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Though the Macedonian Christians didn't have much to give, they really wanted to give, and they saw it as a privilege to give. Now, why? The reason why was because the word all-sufficiency was a desire that God's trying to get out of our hearts. The all-sufficiency, a lot of times people think of, I have all that I need, but that's not actually what the word's referring to. The word all-sufficiency was a Greek word that actually literally meant contentment. Contentment. 
And he's saying so that having all contentment at all times, you'll have all that you need. Many times we never feel like we have enough because we're always in a what? An advertising culture, right? My sister works in advertising and so it's her job to make you want stuff, <laughs> right? And if you're flipping through your Instagram feed, has anybody been freaked out that the very thing you were just talking to somebody about in the room all of a sudden shows up on your feed? And you're like, how did they know? Because they're listening. <laughs> Always listening. This is the truth, right? But the thing is, is that it deliberately moves against an attitude of contentment in our heart that binds us up in our giving. If we're not content, then we're always saying, I don't have enough to give. I don't have enough to give because I don't have what I want. And therefore, since I don't have what I want, and I'm not just talking about material things. I'm talking about experiences, right? We're in the experience economy now. People don't want material things right now amongst the millennials. They want, they want to live life and have experiences. And a lot of times the lack of a contentment also comes not just in material things, but also in experiences. I didn't get to do what that other person got to do. Therefore, until I get to do that, I can't give. Anybody ever experienced something like that before? But what God's saying is I want to free you from that. I want to free you so that you actually are living in the peace of God, which transcends all understanding because you have a contentment that fills your soul. That it's actually a thankfulness for what you have, not what you don't have. Not a disgruntledness towards what you don't have. That's why whenever he's talking about giving, he says literally that the gift of God in giving, he says is acceptable, not according, not to what one doesn't have, but what one does have. When you give, he's not expecting you to give like Bill Gates does, unless you are Bill Gates, right? He's expecting you to give according to what you have. But at the same time, can you be content? This is how you get freed up from your bondage to selfishness. Can you give because you're content with what you have so that you can give out of what he's given you to be a blessing to others who do not have? Hello? Does this make sense? How many of us would actually say, I live in a place of contentment? Contentment in my life. I can't tell you, you know, how often <clears throat> I've talked to people and they're like, listen, if I just have a little bit more, then I'll finally be happy. If I just get to this place in my career, I'll finally be happy. If I just achieve this promotion, then I'll finally have arrived. Knowing that when they get there, they're going to be just as unhappy as they were prior, prior to that achievement, because it's not an issue of position. It's a matter of the heart. And what God's trying to give us is a place of contentment in him. And that's the grace of giving where it's in all sufficiency. He wants to give you his grace. He also says at all times and things, second Corinthians eight, two, he says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty welled up into extreme generosity. The poverty of the Macedonians is confirmed by secular history. <clears throat> the Romans took most of their wealth when they conquered this former homeland of, the, of Alexander the Great. And so they were dealing with an extreme poverty, but they still found the grace of God to give in the midst of their poverty. Now, this is a big deal because <clears throat> people often say, once I get somewhere financially, then I'll start to give. 
Okay, watch this now. Let's get real practical. How many people have ever had school loans before? Well, thank God for those of you who haven't. need to talk to you. <laughs> Listen, if you've ever had a mortgage before, if you've ever had bills before, let me tell you something. I sometimes feel like I live to pay bills. Has anybody ever felt that way before? I'm not saying that's God's plan for your life. You know what I mean? I'm just saying sometimes it feels that way. I live to pay bills, right? But here, here's the thing about it. A lot of times my temptation, especially when I was coming out of school, was this. I, I thankfully did not. Um, we had uh, school, school loans that we had to pay for in the midst of um, coming out of school. And there were a lot. And uh, I, I went into, I started off in banking. I was a banker. Anybody work in banking here? Okay, cool. That's fine. I'm by myself. So the thing is, is I worked in banking, but then all of a sudden um, I was called to ministry. How many people know those are two different, <laughs> two different trajectories? So I was called to ministry, but had these school loans. God told me I was obligated to give, right? But he wanted to bring me to a place of grace giving. So my question was, in my mind, should I wait to start obeying God until I get to my place of achievement? And then once I got it all sorted out, then I'll start giving. Practically, right? Now, that was a temptation to do it that way. But when you look at things, um, my trajectory of life, what began to happen was that not only was I single, but then I was married. Not only was I married, but then I had one kid. Not only was I married with one kid, but then I had two kids. Not only was I married with two kids, but then they just kept multiplying. Then it's like baby's kids. You know, it's like, it's like now, now I have four and my wife and I are officially outnumbered in our home. Okay. So zone defense now. And the thing about it, <clears throat> the thing about it is that at every point, and oh, I'm sorry, not only that, but we moved from a place called North Carolina to a place called Chicago. And how many people know that, I mean, I love Chicago, but it's expensive. <laughs> okay. It's like, it's expensive and a lot, about three times as much cost of living as North Carolina. Now, I'm not encouraging you to move. We like you here. Okay, but, but, but I was saying, you know, well, if I was only waiting to get to a place where I had it all together before I started obeying God, I still wouldn't be there. Everybody understand that? I still wouldn't be there. The answer, or, or, or watch this now. Anybody ever had credit card debt before? Oh, come on, be honest. <laughs> oh, that bad's hand. Okay, <laughs> sort of like, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what you'd speak of, Robin. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you've had credit card debt before, you're like, okay, listen, once I get out of this debt, then I'll start praying, paying my own. But here, let me hear, let me, let me say this. Your continued disobedience isn't the answer to overcome or get you to a place of obedience. You, you understand what he's saying here? By perpetuating disobedience, that doesn't get you to a place of final obedience. By saying, okay, I'm going to make up for this by actually doing and getting rid of all that I shouldn't have swiped. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anybody ever, come on now. Anybody ever swiped for something they shouldn't have and regretted it later and wanted to give it back, but you couldn't <laughs> because you'd used it for the past five months? <laughs> 
right before you woke up, okay? Here, here's the thing. You're, you're getting to a place of obedience in God is not going to be accomplished by continued disobedience. Does that make sense? By continuing to put off what God said to do, that will not change the posture of your heart to live in obedient faith moving forward. You think that once I finally pay off that 20%, you know, APR loan, you know what I mean? Then eventually that, that's when my heart will be right to start giving to God. How many people know that it doesn't work that way? It's when you step out right here and right now in obedience to what he said, that his grace is actually released to set you free to get on the right course. You know what I had to do? I'm just telling you my story because I was a swipeaholic. Whenever my parents like graduated from college and they told me, you're a man now, you're on your own. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, everything that I, but I had this addiction. You see, you see, I lived in a time of CDs. Anybody remember what a CD is? <laughs> okay. It's like, and I had this collection, I had this collection that really could have filled the room. And it's like when I graduated and my parents cut me off, I didn't, I didn't realize that patterns needed to change. And so I didn't think they were serious at first, so I kept swiping. But then all of a sudden I got married and I had this debt and I was like, oh my goodness, what am I to do? Well, the thing that I had to do is I had to obey God first in my giving and then cut up my card second to free me of patterns that were continually digging me into the hole, right? I didn't start my obedience after it was done. Does that make sense, everybody? I'm trying to be real practical with you today because these are the affairs of life. And a lot of times people are like, oh, don't talk to me about that. Just talk to me about how Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> okay, he rose from the dead to do what? <laughs> to free us from our sins and give us liberty to walk with him in the practical affairs of life. Okay. Paul was addressing this. And in all good works, that was the thing he said, I'm going to eventually give you the ability to walk with in all good works. So that having all that you need at all times, you'll be able to excel in every good work. What does that mean? That you're actually involved in the things of the kingdom. That it's not just you swipe it and burn it and you don't see it again. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. I appreciate Starbucks. We're an investor in our personal um, family's IRA in Starbucks. I appreciate it. But I'm still telling you, don't go all the time. <laughs> It's benefited in our Roth, but like, listen, <laughs> stay home sometimes. I remember trying to meet with, I, <laughs> I tried to meet with, I tried to meet with this guy who was an older gentleman, like here in the city, he had conquered his mountain and he schooled me. He schooled me. I was like, Hey, listen, sir. You know what I mean? Trying to share the gospel with him. I was like, would you like to meet me at Starbucks? We can have a drink and talk about the things of God. And he was like, Rollin. I was like, yes, sir. He's like, well, we need to make, uh, go to Starbucks. I can make coffee for like five cents at home. <laughs> and I was like, I'll meet you there, sir. <laughs> you know, and I was like, he schooled me, right? Because it's sort of like he put me in a, a place where it's like, wait, that $5 that I'm saving can actually go towards something kingdom oriented, right? Something kingdom oriented rather than just me burning it 
and I'm not just talking my tongue, but burning it, you know what I mean? Threw it in the moment. He says, for all things at all times, for all good works. Now, here's the beauty of it. Enriching grace is finally this, and this is where we're landing. Enriching grace brings you to a place of enriching at least three people. Enriching, number one, the receiver. That's obvious, right? When you're giving an enriching grace, you're actually go, moving in the grace of God. It enriches the receiver. Whenever the offerings were given to the Jerusalem church, what happened? It was distributed to those in need, and it blessed them. It took care of their practical needs, right? So whenever we're giving to not just the church, but to the poor, right? When we're doing things like the Karis Banks, or we're giving, doing things like, you know, giving to missions, or we're giving to things like hurricane relief, or we're giving to things in this city, right? Where we even, how about this? Even collection of the uh, clothing, right? Anybody ever participated in the clothing drive before? That has practical benefits to those who receive it. So it's an enriching grace to the recipient. That's obvious, right? There's a grace that's distributed to them. But it's also, a lot of times people think about that, but we don't think about the, um, the blessing or the enrichment to the giver, meaning you, meaning me. That's 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. What does that mean? It means that there is a blessing or an enrichment to the giver materially, right? Trust that God will provide for the giving heart. And the promise of Philippians 4 19 is that he will enrich you in every way so that all things at all times, you can be generous on every occasion, right? But here's the thing about it. It's also spiritual. You can trust that God will reward the giving heart both now and in eternity. That's why Jesus said, hey, listen, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's not saying do not have a retirement fund. That's not what he's saying, but he is saying, don't make it your hope. Don't make it your confidence. Don't make it just the thing that you're building on, right? He said, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where um, rust and moth destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth can destroy, nor can thieves break in and steal. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And people don't like to think that way, but if you actually open your bank statement, you can see where your heart is. And some of you, your heart belongs to Amazon. <laughs> I'm just getting real practical, right? You are a lover of Jeff Bezos. <laughs> because all I see in my ledger is just what? Amazon, 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 Amazon. Brian, <laughs> right? <laughs> He's like, but God is saying, I want your heart. And you can't tell me with lip service that you love me, but never give to the things that concern me. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. Chop one thing down, another thing springs up. Anybody ever run a race before and thought you were doing well and then got tripped up in the middle? See, this is an opportunity to keep going. Matthew 19, 29, obviously Jesus said, anyone who leaves father and mother, brothers and sisters, children and lands for mine's name's sake will not, receive a, will not fail to receive rather a hundredfold in this age with that persecutions and then eternal life to come. But finally, and most importantly, the enriching grace ends in gratitude towards God. 2 Corinthians 9, 11, and 12 repeated. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. What should the result of our giving be? It should be to turn people to God. To God. To God. Has anybody ever been the recipient of grace and you thank not just the person, but you thank God? That is the point. That our giving results in thanksgiving to God. That's why it's worship from us to lead to worship from others to him. And if you don't associate your giving with thanksgiving to God, then you'll think it's still just about you. The result is thanksgiving to God, who is the giver of not only all life, but all gifts for his purposes. Everybody, I'm going to end by saying this. You'll hear me say it again and again, but we are not owners, but we are stewards. You hear this? If you take this away, what is enriching grace? It's helping us understand that we are not owners of anything. We are merely stewards. And the one who owns it all will eventually call us to account. I'm saying that for me. And I live in the fear of God in that manner. That he's going to say, Roland, what did you do with what I entrusted to you? And it's not just your preaching, Roland. You hear me? It's not just your preaching, Roland. It's not just how you smiled to people and gave them a hug. It's what you did with what I entrusted to you, Roland. See, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. That's why I'm taking my time today because <laughs> this is my personal devotion. <laughs> and he's going to call us all to account according to our time, our talent, and our resources. And what we want to say is, God, I've lived in your grace. I want to model my life after the Macedonian churches that out of my extreme poverty, I, and some of you don't say that, that's fine, but out of my extreme poverty, I gave excitedly and generously to all that concerned you for your glory so that it could result in thanksgiving to you. Amen? All right, well, I tried to take my time today so we could get real practical. No hype session here, just Bible teaching. So if we could, let's have the worship team come on back. And then what we ask you to give is your worship to God. Your worship to God. Your worship to God. And here is what we're going to say. If ever you found that in your heart you're not right with God, here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God Almighty sent his son, perfect, sinless, to live the selfless, sinless life that you and I should have lived. Though we've been bound in idolatry, he never was. And he was a giver. And he says, I lived the life that you should have lived. And then on that cross, he went and he died the death that you and I should have died for our selfishness, for our greed, for our self-centeredness, and for our sin. But three days later, God the Almighty raised him from the dead so that through our repentance meaning changing our mind and going in a different direction and our faith in who he is and what he's done for us, he might not only forgive us, but wash us clean and give us new life, eternal life in him. And that's a freedom that he wants to bring you into today in Jesus' name. Amen.